Welcome to Cataclysmic Comics Backpack. We're meeting in an abandoned cafe at the edge of a future catastrophe. My name is Ivan Kokmerik, and periodically, I prepare a guest for an adventure into a desolate apocalyptic landscape, and I provide them with a knapsack into which they can place five comics or graphic novels of their choice to accompany them through oblivion. Their very difficult job is to make those choices. Hi, I'm here today with Mark Innes, Hamilton-based comic publisher, producer, independent creator of comics. Now, Mark, you're a Hamilton boy, aren't you? You were born in Hamilton? Yep, born in Hamilton in 66, and I've pretty much lived here almost all my life. What part of Hamilton did you grow up in? Uh, Not far from where I I am now, uh, on the central uh, Hamilton mountain. From your memories on the mountain as a kid growing up in probably in the 70s, I guess. Yep. By the time the 70s came around, I was uh, into stuff. Yep. What's your first comic book memory that you have that you can recall? The thing is, I don't, I, I'm guessing a lot of kids' houses were like this. They were always there in our house. Uh-huh. I have a feeling either my older brother or my, to a degree, my maybe my sisters and possibly from my uh, grandparents, comics filtered down into our house. And I do not ever remember them not being there. I know. I remember I'm a little bit older than you. I remember growing up to the 60s. And when mm-hmm. I went up on the mountain, I could never find that many Marvel comics. They seem to have only DC. I don't know if you ever experienced this. Most of the Marvels were downtown. Yeah, it could be that throughout the 60s, by the time I was looking for comics, it was by at the earliest, maybe. Although I might have read them earlier than 72. I don't recall looking in a store. They, they might have been close to 20 cents by the time I was uh, I was looking at them. And it's possible that at times distribution changed and got more even as the 70s went on. But I've heard that Marvel in the 60s was hard to find in some areas. But do you, do you remember a specific comic, the uh, first comic that made an impression on you? I remember getting some gold, you know, like gold key cartoon comics and Harvey stuff when I was very little. And Archie, you know, all, all that oh, yeah. kind of kids comics that, that started off with. I didn't really start with uh, superhero comics, at least a couple years later. You know, yeah. I, 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 some people started very young with superhero comics. And I look at a Marvel book and it seems so complex, like not, not even just the stories, but the art and the usually the, the amount of detail in it would always just kind of be overwhelming for me, it seemed. Yeah, that's a good way of describing those Bronze Age marvels. I guess it started off in the 60s. They just expanded the universe and got really com- complex is a good word. Now, do you remember the first comic that you ever bought? Well, how about a first comic book store that you remember? 70s, Although, I don't think there were many. There were George's, Captain George's in uh, Toronto. But here in Hamilton, I don't think there was much. Some of the guys that we know, uh, Vince Marchesano and Eric Cooper and those guys would go to uh, see, and Ron Caspin would go see uh, Captain George as early as, what, 68 or 69 yeah, yeah, I remember. That's when I actually I remember going to see him in '66 when he had the Viking Bookshop on oh. Queen Street before he opened the uh, the one on Markham. Okay, I didn't know he was in back then. But in Hamilton, I didn't really realize that. You know how it is before you find comics as a collectible in a store, uh-huh. you're just buying things that you like to read. Yeah, and then maybe you accumulate a pile of them and say, "Hey, I'm saving them." And now I guess you're col- you're a collector. I'm trying to remember the first time I was in Toronto Silver Snail. It might have been 1978. I just remember being blown away by the quantity of old books and then the prices was very disappointing when you're when you're a kid but but i remember also probably by sometime in 1978 perhaps summer being at eastgate square and they had flea markets there around yeah. then in the late 70s yeah. and there was two comic dealers that showed up there and they had old books and i could uh, arrange it by then to 
come up with a few dollars a week and pick up old comics. Now, when did you start thinking about producing a sort of, I remember you produced a Hamilton fanzine. Yep, I did a few different things. As I was, I really, really got into collecting comics, starting around grade eight. And then uh, in high school, I started reading news magazines about comics and creators. And, you know, I'd take trips to the flea market and trips down James Street North when all the comic stores and used bookstores down yeah. there started selling comics. And I just was absorbed and I was really interested in um, mostly Silver Age. I collected things like I was really interested in collecting Flash and uh, mm-hmm. Adam Strange and Brave and the Bold and things like that. Around 1984, I saw some articles in the Comics Journal. It was a big, long article about New Wave Comics. And New Wave Comics were, was a movement primarily uh, started by Clay Geerdes, who was a guy in California who made hundreds of eight-page mini-comics. And basically, an eight-page mini-comic is one piece of paper folded in half with a staple in it. I looked at these, and they were so interesting. And then there was other people who made comics that were just all kinds of things. And they weren't necessarily superheroes, and they weren't necessarily anything. And the quality of it was all over the place, and the subject matter was all over the place. And almost nobody was famous. But it was just, just seemed so interesting. And I think that's where it was. I wanted to make my own comics based on what I read there. And some of the people in that article, I'm now friends with on Facebook, like 35, 40 years, 35 years later, because those were the guys that I wanted to be a part of. And some of them went on to independent comics and others went on to other fields. I'm trying to think of some of the more famous people. Rick Geary was was one of them. Some of them were in Raw magazine. A lot of them were in a, a lot of underground and independent and alternative kind of comics. And what the was the very first publication that you... Around 1983, I made like a 12-page thing that I wrote and drew myself. It was kind of a class thing because I'd print, I was at uh, Sir John and McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And they had a, a printer there. It was like an A.B. Dick offset thing. It was a desktop offset printer. And you actually drew right on the printing plate. And um, so I made this kind of artsy-fartsy uh, kind of 12 full panels of um, a comic that doesn't didn't really make a whole lot of sense. But it was interesting. I think I have one copy of it left. I made about 20 and I kind of gave them away. Uh, it's kind of a kludge. A lot of... A lot of cross-hatching to make up for talent. You're a, you're a mountain kid. Mm-hmm. You ended up at an inner-city school. So John A. McDonald is an inner-city school, but it's known for its art department as well. Absolutely. And I think that's what got me started. On the mountain, I went to Queensdale Public School uh-huh. for a year. And I have a vision impairment. And they thought that I should go to a, a, a school that has programming for visually impaired kids. Uh-huh. So I went to Prince of Wales for grades one through eight mm-hmm. in throughout the 70s. And that was fine. And then I switched back to uh, Sir John A. MacDonald for pretty much a regular high school. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they suggested it. They thought it would work out well for me there. To be fair, I would have. it's a long haul to get wherever I want to go anyway. So, yeah, I was good. I was good there. But you're right. As soon as I got into Sir John A., it was, I, I noticed, I, I, I didn't even take art in grade 9, but in grade 10 I did. And then I discovered, I said, wow, there's like literally a whole floor of art stuff. Like it was just incredible. And um, one art class sort of sparked an interest. And then starting the next year, I started taking two art classes a year. And uh, I just I just wanted to uh, make my own thing. But it helped helped you get a sort of a first handle on publishing because it had the printer there. Yeah, it was a first thought. And then from there, I, I actually went to Sheridan College. 
okay. for illustration in 1985. Well, let me, let me hold you up there before we get to Sheridan, because I'd like you to come up with your first comic book pick at this point. I would say something like a nice 80-page giant flash, number 160, let's say, yeah. with uh, you get a, three of the early stories with Infantino. So that would be my choice for my first one is uh, an 80-page giant flash 360. What would that give you when you pulled that out of the knapsack and you're sitting on some rubble somewhere in the apocalypse? What sort of feeling would that give you? I remember the first time I saw, because those came out a couple years before I was born. Well, I mean, not that issue, but the reprints of it. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the early um, Infantino flash, there's something about the design that just seems so charming, so positive. It's the same thing with Adam Strange. Yeah, it just yeah. seems nice. <laughs> so you get some sort of aesthetic pleasure from it when you come out. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your experience at Sheraton. I, I just wanted to draw and I wanted to, to be around people that draw that, that made art and I wanted to do the best I could. And I went in there and I'm, I'm for one thing, I'm colorblind. Huh. And although some of the aspects of that program I could do well, and there was some dead ends, and, and it was very frustrating. I learned a lot, you know, and I, and I enjoyed being around the instructors, and uh, I look back at it as, as some worthwhile experience. I had trouble, I, yeah, I had issues that year with my vision, so I, I switched I wanted to switch to something that was just more focused on drawing. So I actually switched to animation in 1986 in Oakville. That, I think that was actually more of a mistake in some respects because that's it's more like a, a technician who's just cranking out drawings in the most for the most part. I actually enjoyed it less than just single illustrations. And this was but, all uh, in the age before any sort of digital support or computer support. Uh, to a degree, yeah. Although they, they had some experimental computer animation at Sheridan College at the mm-hmm. time, but it was very, like, very uh, edgy and not, like, wasn't the normal, the kind of thing that most of the students got involved in. It was just kind of on the horizon. Yeah, everything was, you know, hand done. And mm-hmm. you drew, you know, you did pencil drawings and then you would take them into a dark room and you would put them on a, under a camera and you'd film each one. And you, it was very laborious process. Oh, <laughs> but there's people, um, you know, in the comics field here in Ontario that went a lot further than I, than I did. Our friend Rob Walton yeah. from Ragmop um, had a, has had a pretty good career in animation. And mm-hmm. so has uh, Sam Agro. But I did meet um, some friends there at uh, animation, notably Mark Petlock, who had a career in animation. He's, I think he's in Korea now or Australia, probably. I think he's in Melbourne, Australia now. And he was working on a comic shortly after that called Eggplant. He was, we were both had an interest in weird comics. We kind of mucked about with different things in any ways. It wasn't until years later that we got back together, but that's a, a few years off. And what happened after Sheridan? Uh, did you start publishing other stuff immediately or what happened? Yeah. After Sheridan, I, I wanted to make comics. That's all I just wanted to do. So I started drawing a comic strip, like a like an eight-page story that I finished. My friend John Miori had just drawn a comic strip that he wanted to get published somewhere. I took those two works and printed them together in a 16-page uh, mini comic, like a like a digest a digest size comic, mm-hmm. and I printed I don't know 100 copies, photocopies, mm-hmm. and I started mailing them around to what was in the day of small press comics review review magazine. In the meantime, when I last looked, when we, when you when you go back to new wave comics that I re- read about three years earlier, 
and I said, this is for me. The name kind of changed in a few years, and it changed to Small Press Comics. It just seemed a little more modern and including a lot of these names sort of, they sort of mean different things, but it's hard to say to someone, uh, is a small press comic a, a, an eight-page mini or a digest or a magazine or a full comic? I guess it's a lot of things to a lot of people, but to me, a small press comic back in the day was a photocopied thing folded over. There's also but, the uh, term uh, independent comics or even from the 60s old underground comics. How do they fit into that whole scheme? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I would say around 1975 or 6, Undergrounds really almost died, except for there was some things put out with Crumb and Jay Lynch mm-hmm. and a few like the big names. The companies would come out with more things. And companies like Kitchen Sink, starting in the mid-70s, tried to branch out and make things like they did the Spirit magazine and they yeah. did other books. And the market was not there. And the people that wanted to do their own unusual little comics, there was no market for them in the underground, especially the new guys. So the people that, that wanted to make it, they had to do their own thing. And that's why you would end up with all these oddball little little comic makers. And what are they? Well, it's it's kind of hard to say. Yeah. But but they weren't really fanzines because they, they weren't a fan of another comic. But anyway, so well, look at look yeah. at uh, say around seventy five two, you've got Dave Sim and Aardvark Vanaheim, which was the big independent sort of comic. Yeah. Group. And again, that's not really an under... For a while, they were trying to call that ground level, along with things like Star Reach mm-hmm. and, oh, yeah. uh, and Jim Whaley's Orb. Yeah. They kind of had their own little market. It wasn't quite what I would call edgy, but it was it was it was independently uh, ran and, and and owned, and it was it's all part of it. It's all part of it. I remember reading when I was little Star Reach, and and, I, and then later I saw Orb, and I thought this is this is really compelling. And that you can do your own thing and, and you can make it and you can don't have to answer to anybody. There's nothing stopping you. There's no barriers. Canadian too. It was Canadian, which was important to me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The thing that I admire about Sim was he just made it and he got it printed. Just do the work and make it. There's always a way to get it out there. You may not make a lot of money or any money, but... There's, there's usually a way to get it published and available. Yeah. So anyway, so after, after I made that zine, it was a, it was a zine called Wavemakers. Mm-hmm. And we, we did, I, I don't know, maybe a hundred copies of it. You know, it's sort of a crude photocopied thing, but I, I thought this is the beginning of something. In the 80s, there was these review magazines and there was especially a big, the big ones that I remember were Small Press Comics Explosion and Comic Book Newsletter was one, which changed its name to The Comicist. There was a few other ones. Oh, Fact Sheet 5. Have you heard of Fact Sheet 5? No, I don't think I know any of those from the 80s. I think my my comic interests really slowed down after the, the 70s. The thing about a magazine like Fact Sheet 5, which I actually heard about separately, I think it goes back as far as 1980, and that lasted until the 2000s. Mm-hmm. That's um, a review magazine to end all review magazines because they review literally everything. If you mail them something, and in fact, back in the day with Fact Sheet 5, if you mailed them a, review, a copy of your item for review, he would literally mail you a free copy of his magazine. <laughs> and it was basically the Sears catalog of reviews because literally I, I, I don't have any, well, I might have one, but they would be about 100 pages and each page would have maybe 50 reviews on it of mm-hmm. stuff. And it would be comics and independent records and tapes and books and all kinds of things. And it was just so neat. And once you get your yourself reviewed, suddenly a month later or three weeks later, you'd be getting envelopes in the mail with a dollar or two in it or, uh, or other people would just send you a book and they want you to trade with you and you'd end up with a lot of neat stuff. And it really wasn't hard to sell 
a few copies through the mail and get started like that. And you'd make contacts all over, you know, North America. That's right. So I did uh, that one. And then by the time I did the second and third and fourth of my zines, more local people came on board. And there was a story that Vince drew uh, with, with John Miori, with, with Marchesano, uh, that I included in, uh, in one of those. I'd, I'd like to find home. Back then, I would, I would want my zine to be a home for orphaned uh, work. And uh, I'd send it out there and gradually, you know, I guess I could sell about 100 copies of a, of a little zine, which wasn't a bad deal, in my opinion. And it was, it was interesting and exciting, I thought, at the time. I think it's great for a little sort of cottage type industry to get started. And it never discouraged you too. you were happy to sell 100 copies. It was a, it was a success. Well, because you start and you don't know yeah. if anyone's going to take one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, so, I, so I'm just just going from there. I, I did about a couple years later, I joined a group called the United Fanzine Organization, uh-huh. which was a group of American until I joined fanzine makers that some of them were older than me. And they would they were doing zines since the early 70s. You would trade zines and they would make a it was kind of like an amateur press association. You know what that is? An APA. Each one mails in uh, their contribution to a monthly or bi-monthly newsletter. And it would usually be something on paper, whether it be art or articles. Whereas in this case, and you would trade zines and then the, the, the moderator, sorry, the uh, president, I guess, I don't know, I can't remember what he was called, would uh, make a newsletter every two months and people would comment on your zine and uh, it was just kind of fun, you know, it was kind of a little bit of camaraderie. Well, those zines were such a source all the way from, from the early zines in the 60s and the States all the way through the 80s and on. And I hope somebody does some work on those and uh, does a history of all those zines eventually. There are a few out there. Um, and then there's a guy who's on my Facebook friends with list named Rick Bradford, B-R-A-D-F-O-R-D, who's making something called the, uh, I think it's called the Poop Sheet, the Poop Sheet Foundation. And he's making like a database of all kinds of independent and small press and underground comics of whatever he finds. He's adding it to it. He's adding thousands and thousands. He says he's got 15,000 independent and small press Good, I don't, because that information shouldn't be lost. Oh, yeah, it'd be great if it, you know, if it continued. Anyway, so after I did all all those photocopied comics, I thought I'd like to try making a real independent comic. Well, hold on there, because this might be a good place to stick in your second pick and segue into that later. As you pick the Flash annual giant, what would be your second pick for your your knapsack? How about, uh, when I like a whole run of a comic, like like I like Zot from the 80s by Scott Uh McCloud. Uh-huh. Um, 37 issues in that series that came out. I'm going to say a number is 11 and 12. And why specifically those two? The first 10 issues uh, came out and then he went away and he made that Understanding Comics book, which you might have heard oh, about. Yeah, yes, yes. And then he did that and then he came back. His odd, and the first few comics were like sort of like a, a juvenile kind of superhero, fun kind of Buck Rogers kind of thing. And it came back and it's like he absorbed all this new comics knowledge and became kind of experimental. And yet it still had the same fun comic character. I don't, I just found the story so, so enjoyable and the mm-hmm. art so interesting. And he switched from color to black and white. I just found that he just went to new levels and developed in ways that I was never seen before. So, Zot. Great. And I'll have to familiarize myself with that. You said you, at that point, you were getting into producing something more professional. Yeah, I guess we're talking about 1991-ish. Uh-huh. I guess I guess the, the 80s black and white boom was over. 
but I didn't want to believe it because it seems like you, you want these things to go on forever. Had I have jumped in three or four years earlier, I could have been a little more successful. So anyway, so I, I contacted some of the same people in the group and, and a few new ones. I got Brad Foster from Texas to do the cover. Mm-hmm. And uh, Larry McDougall, who's from Hamilton, some guys from Montreal named David Baca, who was, he just made some neat zines. And I don't know, I think he did some work for Drawn and Quarterly, and then he kind of disappeared. And my friend Bernie Moreau gave me a story, and I bumped into Matt Howarth, who's done work for Heavy Metal at a Toronto comic convention, and he gave me eight pages, which was broke, which I broke up into two issues. I put out the first four in that issue. And it was a 52 or 56 page black and white comic. Now, was and, this uh, the start of Blind Bat Press yet or not? No. Well, my, technically, the first one was Blind Bat Press back in 88. Uh-huh. Like the first the first digest. When when did I start calling it that? Yeah. At some point, it just I just kind of did. And it was probably earlier. It was certainly before then. And I was talking about it with my friend Earl Geyer. Mm-hmm. who was a very close friend. He, he's a really talented artist. He's done some work for Dark Horse and uh, a couple of little things in those giant DC books of urban legends. He's one of these guys who you you wonder, why isn't he more successful? He lived in Chicago, and he made a zine called Bald Eagle, B-A-L-D-E-G-O, in the late 70s. And he wanted to make his own comics, too. I, I don't know. I think we were talking between the two of us in letters, and uh, we came up with the idea of Blind Bat Press. And he drew a, a logo for it. He drew the first one that I used on the, and I probably used it uh, before the independent comic, I would say on some of the digests. What was uh, the name of this independent comic that you just started talking about? Oh, it was basically a revision of the Wavemakers digests, but mm-hmm. with all new content. We just kept the title going and I renumbered it number one again, the second mm-hmm. number one, and it was just more anthology. And it was basically anything goes. And then the second one came out a year later. It took me a year because I saving up all the money for printing. And I tried to give all the artists and writers something. I wish I had the books in front of me. I should have thought to bring them. I could list some of the names. The next issue came out and it was 68 pages anthology. And we upgraded the quality of the covers, I think. We printed both issues at Preeny Print and Litho in Windsor. The same uh, one that's, you know, they used to do all the Canadian uh, they did Cerebus and they did oh, Aerosol. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. And they were in business up until a few years ago. Around 2006, I was going to print a book from them and I saw all of their office equipment being auctioned off somewhere. Yeah. And I thought, oh, well. <laughs> so again, I had more of that Matt Howard story and more Larry McDougall and who else was in there? Uh, Wayno, a cartoonist who's done work for somewhere. I can't remember who else was in it. My Oh, my friend David Ford from Hamilton mm-hmm. wrote a story about a female detective and it was a long story and a friend another another uh, guy from Hamilton Ron Gravel penciled it another friend inked it and I thought that was a really good strip and uh, had potential it was kind of a macabre detective and it was just I don't know it's 14 pages that comic and I don't know who who saw it or or, or but it was so anyways um, that was the last thing uh, I, I printed by David Ford who was a Pretty interesting. He was. I met him in high school, and he had such interesting things in his comics and his writing. What's so the I, hardest part of doing all that? That seems like a big task. You know, ups and downs. People you get along with, people you don't. Yeah, it, it can be uh, stressful. You know, back in the day, and I think that 64-page comic we did the second one. Yeah. I thought I'd. You know, I actually made a profit on the first issue. I thought, what? 
How could that be? It actually made a profit. And I didn't think it was a terrible book by my standards, but I thought, wow, okay. So I actually expanded it a little. I threw in a few more pages and I sort of was daring. And I asked a few people that were really good, in my opinion, to do work. I offered a page rate that was a little more and I paid all the money up in advance and I printed it and I ended up selling less actually than the first one. Though I, I was really proud of the second issue of, of Wavemakers. It was a 68-page comic. There was a, a comic in the 80s called Pirate Core by Evan Dorkin that I loved. And I had a four-page uh, comic by him in there. And there was um, some other work in there uh, from people that, you know, that, that, I, that I'd met through uh, the small press years. All the time when I would be making those zines and trading with people, I'd have boxes full of oddball zines. And I would say, hmm, wonder if this person would like to do a comic for my, for my book. And then you, you know, and you could pick the best people. That was the neat thing about the day. Mm-hmm. And it was all through the mail. Okay, it's time for me to ask for your third pick. I would say I love the Love and Rockets from the 80s. Yeah. Uh, a specific issue. Oh, we can let you have a collection. Yeah. Let's say some of the early ones of Love and Rockets, you know, not, they did one issue. They printed one of their own around 1980 and then uh-huh. it was picked up by Panagraphics and they did a second number one. So I'll pick that one. That and was, what appealed uh, to you about Love and Rockets? That was, that was such a huge hit at the time when it came out. Yeah, it came out. At, at first I thought it seems kind of, eh, I, I didn't really, I didn't really get it. Like I, and then after a while, especially now, I read it more and more, and it's especially uh, Gilbert Hernandez, the mm-hmm. characters and the stories. I, I first I thought, oh, he's writing about his native home. No, that's all made up. Like it's all, <laughs> it's such an imagination. And uh, again, and it was with Gilbert, it's sort of like there's something mystical and magical always happening somewhere that's under the surface. It's just nothing like it. And then with his brother uh, uh, Jaime Hernandez. I thought his art was just something about it was so special. And the characters were endearing at first because at first I was a Jaime Hernandez fan mm-hmm. and they would share the book. They would each do half a book. And I, and I switched from liking one more to liking the other more. I guess people's change. <laughs> but, well, it, uh, it's strange, but what stuff will resonate with people? I mean, it's so individual. It's so, uh, it's hard to explain taste and what, what comes uh, mm-hmm. and fits with your own brain, but it does. And uh, it's good to hear that. I like the way Love and Rockets is in a comics tradition. The people that make comics that don't, it's got to have something from the past in it to some, something that's not so far out of the box uh-huh. that you can't relate to it. And yeah. Love and Rockets, you, it, you can look at it, you can see things like Dennis the Menace and Archie <laughs> and uh, Herbie and some other wacky comics in there. And maybe even a little bit of uh, Steve Ditko. Mm. You can kind of see that in there, but these guys read that and they kind of rearranged it and they did it their own, uh, doing their own thing. So, well, you're in the 90s now. Around 93, I made a, um, a funny animal horror comic called Dinky on the Road with John Miori. That's uh, his, he made a mini comic and he expanded the story into a, a 24 page sort of oddball hamster uh, horror comic. It's about someone's pet who kind of, you know, you see the world from the, animal's point of view it's kind of a bit of horror and a bit of oddball silliness it's it's it was an odd little comic so we printed up probably about 1500 of them and it actually pretty much sold out so i was quite pleased that i didn't lose money and it looked okay it came out okay i was i was not unhappy with that and what came after this 
that was in 93. And then in 94, I was at probably Ron Kasman's house in Toronto. It might have been in the summer for a burger con. Uh-huh. Legendary burger cons. <laughs> That's right. And uh, it might have been in summer 93. And I bumped into uh, Henrik Rehr, R-E-H-R, who had moved recently there from, from uh, Denmark to Toronto. And he was already an established cartoonist in Denmark. And he showed me part of a comic that he'd written. And it was a few pages drawn by another cartoonist from Denmark named Lars Hornman. I thought, wow, it was like a funny science fiction comic, but a certain, you know, really interesting style to the art. I thought, wow. And then he showed me some of the other work he'd done on his own. He was in the middle of working on first or the second volume of a painted graphic novel where every panel was paint, painted called Kvickleaf, mm. K-V-I-K-L-E-I-F. Mm. It's like a little knight or a soldier or something like this. I can't remember. I have it on the shelf, but it was, it's, it's you know, it's a juvenile um, humor adventure kind of thing. And it just looks so good. I can't read it because it wasn't in English. But uh, anyway, I became close friends with Henrik and I printed the finished work of the comic he did with Lars, Lars Hornman. And it was called Oatmeal. We did actually two of them. And um, it was like funny, a funny science fiction adventure, kind of like a, a, a Karl Barks duck story, but in outer space along those lines. Well, that European tradition of comics always seemed to have that uh, that sort of childish. You think of asterisks, you think of... Uh, yep, Tintin. Tintin, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a, a wonderful consciousness that they bring to the whole genre. And it was, yeah, it was. they're so charming. We did two of those, and they were both basically 46-page comics because they wanted to reprint in as many languages as they could. So they, they printed them in, uh, in in Danish after they gave them to me, and they were done in color there in nice, nice books. And the ones I did were, actually, I switched printers for the first one to Montreal, to Quebecor, and it came out pretty nice. And but it did not make money because I've read many times that funny science fiction comics don't sell very well. And I've heard a lot of people say this and I didn't want to listen. But I thought, but this one's really good. It doesn't. And it partly was my fault for not picking a better title. Calling it Oatmeal was not appealing. Like it should have could have come out with they they gave it a different title in Danish. And uh, I regret not doing that. But that's that's my fault. But I was really happy with the way that looked. It was fun. And, uh, you know, I have the actual the artwork for the cover of the first one uh, here. And it's, oh, uh, cool. it was on my wall for a while. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a nice painting that Henrik made. And then the next year I made, uh, we, or they, those guys made a, a sequel uh, to it and uh, we printed it the next one. And, uh, yeah, it, it was it was a happy uh arrangement. I wish I could have gotten those guys money, but it just didn't sell. You know, I think they both sold maybe a thousand copies each, which, you know, was, was not really enough to even pay the printing. Is that your um, biggest regret, Mark, that you couldn't pay the artists, the creators a bit better? Those guys, because they deserved it. I guess the thing, those guys that in fact actually make, made a living from their, their craft. I don't know. Do I owe someone more because they make a living from it as opposed to say uh, a Vince Marchesano who doesn't really have to make a living from it? I guess you should be paying them all equally, but if you can't pay someone the proper wage, then that limits your success because yeah. if you can afford, if you can afford to pay someone $200 a page for comic card you're probably going to be able to get you're going to be able to get a top talent in the field i don't know if that's like a modern stamp i'm just i just pulled that number anyway so we did those two books and in 1995 
Henrik was working on a graphic novel that was going to have it printed in, in Danish, and he was going to have it printed in English. The English title, he called it, was Dreamtime. And it was kind of, uh, it starts off with this young soldier who's like a, a boy, really, who runs away from his army platoon. This is in the middle, like, medieval kind of times. The European pr- tradition with the thatched roofs and the, everything you'd kind of expect out of a out of a guy who reads Asterix and Tintin and, again, and Karl Barth. That was about a 75-page story, and we broke it up over three uh, 28-page comics and printed them, and it did okay. I think we sold probably a couple thousand each. Oh, well done. Again, there's not much money to be had in it, but fortunately, he could make his money from the from the other editions. I gave him something that we got, you know, out of the profits. Mm. But uh, well, that's anyway decent. That's good. Well, let me let me ask you now. We're getting towards the end. I want to ask you mm-hmm. for your fourth pick. Around 1985 or so, 86, there was the Gumby specials. There was two of them from Kamiko. They, they, I think they were both drawn by Art Adams. And they were both so much fun, and they both looked really good, and they had nice color. They, they made me happy. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> nice, a big thing, yeah. Yeah, they were very slick-looking little little funny books. Um, I guess that's a that's the thing that I like, especially looking back now. I, I don't want something that's gonna. Uh, I, I liked a lot of sort of heavy stuff when you're a teenager, but maybe uh-huh. as you get older, I, I like the things things are a little bit lighter. In your four picks so far, you've only picked one traditional superhero type comic, and that's the. Uh, the Infantino Flash collection. Yeah, um, as an adult, you know, I'll go back and I'll look at it, and I like I enjoy '60s and '70s, especially superhero uh-huh. comics. It's not something I go back to in terms of like, and yet there, there's things that I've read that that mean something to me. It's just not the same, and I, and although there's like there's like a nostalgia and a love for the characters, I enjoy a lot of a lot of superhero comics. Mm. Yeah. I wish I, I wish, I, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, John Byrne, Fantastic Four. And for some reason, I can't, I can't go there in terms of like my all time mm-hmm. love. No, I get, I get what you, you mean. I probably uh, lean the same way in the end. Now, it's the last half of the 90s. We're heading into the new millennium. What's going mm-hmm. on in, in your comic book production world at that time? That would be 96 when I did all of those comics with Henrik. I thought, although I'm not making money, I actually didn't care. I thought if I can keep on breaking even, I can do this indefinitely. But that wasn't the case because in the late 90s, it just things, sales in general of small press comics would be down and down and down every year. Yeah. Even for the most successful people, even for the Dave Sims in 1997, it was not the same as 1987. Yeah. I went on to find other things to do. I, I went to back to uh, Mohawk College for software engineering. Uh-huh. for computer programming. But in the meantime, I started working on a zine, a local newsletter for the uh, Hamilton, what was it? Hamilton Comic Club or something like this? Oh, yeah, yeah. Called? I remember that. Or, I can't remember the name like of it. But. Anyways, it was a comic club in Hamilton. I slapped together their newsletter and I did about five of those. And it was articles and whatnot. I, I enjoyed it. And I realized that I like making things. Like it, it didn't matter really uh, what it was, but it was mm-hmm. fun to be involved. I, I stuck with Mohawk College for software engineering, and I did did that in my, you know, I finished that around, I, I, I kind of dragged on until 2001 or two. When did your, your eye anthologies start coming out? Around 2002 or three. Uh-huh. I made a photocopied fanzine called Glass Eye, mm-hmm. and it was... I did an earlier version of that. Or in 1997, just shortly before I went back to Sheridan College, I wanted to make a personal zine 
So I made a 48-page zine that was articles and comics, all the leftover things I thought I might have to, you know, I, what am I going to do with, with myself? And I had leftover bits and pieces from all the comics I was thinking of making, but I didn't think I would be able to make. So I made this 48-page photocopy zine, and it had um, parts of a comic I was going to make with Earl Geyer, and it had some things that I made and articles on collecting. I printed about 100 copies and mostly gave them away. But uh, I like that zine. I also made like a biography. I wrote my life story in comics actually in that zine in like a 20 page illustrated article. A few years later in 2003, I revised that name, Glass Eye, into a 16 page article zine. And I just printed up like 25 copies and gave them away. And then I recycled that name again for a third time around 2005. And I took some of the concepts of that in terms of a comics anthology and articles, but I made it a comic book size and I printed it at Preeny, back at Preeny Print and Litho in Windsor. So it was on newsprint comic. It, it was kind of a bomb financially, but I didn't really invest that much money into it. So, but the next year after that or year or two, I had an idea to make a, a, a romance comic anthology. So we called it the romantic Eye. And um, and I got some of the same guys and some of the new guys, and uh, including Henrik Rare was back. I remember liking that zine. Jim Sierra Gate. Yeah, I remember yeah. that cover. It was that Ken and Barbie cover, wasn't it? Yeah, Bernie Moreau did the cover, oh. and I who created the jam. I I liked that comic. I thought it came out really good. I was really 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 happy with it. Including there was a couple of Danish uh, people in there, and then Earl Geyer was in there, and people uh, from small press. And that was the only book I've ever made that I, that I can think of offhand that came out with no mistakes in it. And I remember saying that at the time. This is the first one that came out with no mistakes in it. First yeah. one. And it's too late to fix it after it's printed. But I thought, well, you know, you know how it goes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Typos and whatnot. Oh, love, yes. But I was, so, I was so happy with that comment. I don't know why it made me happy. But I, I also discovered that was when I looked at Preeny Print and Litho. And they, and they were out of business. And I went to a print on demand in the States. I went to a Kaboom, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. And they would print up 300 copies for you and mail them to you. And they would put them in their online store. I thought it came out pretty good. And, and then it was, was after that. Was but, it easier to produce comics at this point compared to when you had started doing them in the 80s? Uh, just in terms of uh, the mechanics and the use of computers and everything like that? Yeah, you didn't have to uh, get out your glue stick and your scissors as much. Uh-huh, yeah. And, uh, it, yeah, by then it was completely different. And then, you know, in the case of the Kaboom book, sorry, Kablam, you just mailed them, you, you got your files ready on your computer and you mailed them to them. And it was, it seemed like a piece of cake compared to back in the day with mailing things back and forth and blah, blah, blah. It was all kind of awful when you think about it. At the time, it's the best you can do. And at the time, you know, there's a certain satisfaction with doing everything by hand. You know, you, you, yeah. you know, craftsmanship. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the real cottage industry when you, you assemble things by hand right from the start. Yep. I mean, sorry, it was, after, it was after that that I started working on the comic eye. But getting back to it, a lot of people take pride in cutting and folding and stapling their own mm-hmm. small press comic. How, how far do you want to take it to making your own comics? Yeah. Some of these people, they do everything themselves, like literally everything. Now, when did the comic eye come out? So in 2007, after Romantic Eye, I thought I wanted to make uh, a comic that about comics. In mm-hmm. other words, whether people put in things that are 
biographies or that explain an interest, how, how they're, what, what interest, an interest they have in comics or somehow involving comics in the plot somehow or the story. And I started contacting people and work started coming in. And after a while, I, at first I thought I'd have a hard time getting people, but then I started getting literally deluged with comics material. And I was thinking, well, I might make a 128 page book. And then like, after <laughs> what a while, was the I final to, page count of that. I printed 176 and I actually rejected some. And I was oh. thinking that at the time I, I kept having to expand it and reduce it and bump. It was just, it was so confusing at the end, but um, there was, I've never been so deluged with material in my life and and why me you know i don't yeah. i didn't understand where all this came from but you know and it had a great even, cover too yeah so, so shortly, shortly before well during the process i knew i wanted a famous canadian cartoonist to do the cover so i talked to a few of the locals first thought was was, was what about like rob walton who i like and some, someone was saying, even might have even Rob says, well, why not get someone even bigger if it's just you know for one one cover? Yeah. I thought, okay. So Rob actually put me in touch with a couple of people. One of which was Chester Brown, and that yeah. didn't work out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I love Chester Brown's work, but um, yeah, he wasn't gonna gonna be able to do it. He he might have for major money, but yeah. I think he's at a point in his career where he you know he wasn't interested basically in giving it away. And I don't blame them. You know, I, I understand that. Yeah. So I, I just, out of the blue, I, I thought, well, let's throw Dave Sim a note. So I typed out a letter and I mailed it to him and he said, yes, he, he phoned me back a little while later and said he'd do it. And then I don't know where he, he wrote it, but he started writing about this process of, I was saying, Oh, he'd be happy to, he was looking forward to doing me this favor. And I thought, well, that's, that's really nice. He, he'd actually mentioned me in a Dave Sim made this magazine or comic size magazine called the, the Cerebus Guide to Publishing Comic. Mm. And he mentioned me um, in it sort of not by name, but in the beginning of it, he said the origins of this were something to do with uh, a person from Hamilton who around 1995, I was interviewed on CBC radio about, uh, about the blind bat press line. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and I mentioned Dave Sim as being sort of the, the most successful of the Canadian uh, comic makers. And Dave Sims' father-in-law was listening to a CBC radio at the time. It was the morning side with Peter Zowski. And then he phoned Dave Sim. And then I heard, anyway, this, this all, all this came back in some article in, inside this magazine and I read it. And at first I felt embarrassed. It's like, wow, every word you say on the radio is repeated in print by someone who heard it. I went, boy, <laughs> I'm surprised anybody listens to anything I say, you know? <laughs> so anyway, so years later, I sent, I, Dave said he would do the cover and he knew he, he got the concept of sort of a nostalgic, uh, comics about comics thing. I, I like what he did. It's kind of a EC kind of ish look. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was so happy. Paul McCusker did something nice and Sam Agro and was Mike it, did, did the, uh, the, uh, Rick Taylor and Ron Kasman sort of growing up in comics first appear in that? No, but they did something in there. Um, they did, and they, and they both did different, separate things. Ron did his things, did those growing up in comics. I think the first big story he did was in a Negative Burn. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Magazine from Caliber. They had their own sixty-four page special. Yeah, and uh, that was that was was pretty cool. Yeah, all those guys, everybody from Toronto, and then the other small press friends were so open. They said, "Sure, here's." Here's stuff. And I got in touch with people who I'd always liked, but never had a chance to talk to before, like um, Nick Crane, who I think is from Guelph. Uh-huh. 
was a terrific cartoonist. I think he's done work for Marvel. I loved his work. And he did work for uh, oh, Black Eye. Black Eye. He did some work for Black Eye and uh, a company out of Montreal. And I thought, this guy is really good. You know, um, there's, so, there's so many great cartoonists out there. And it was also a chance to go back to some of the friends I, I knew from the old days. And, and that was the first time I printed a new story by Vince in about 20 <laughs> odd years as well. But it took that long to nag him and get him to do something. Now, was so, that comic sort of the the tail end of your production? I haven't done any new comics since. And that was 2008. I haven't said no. It's a different world now, you know, yeah. especially now in that you can still make and try to sell your own comic. What I discovered is that like there's, there was Hamilton small press fairs and zine fairs. Yeah. You can get a lot of buzz through that. And I found that these little zine fairs, your table didn't cost very much. I'd sell a whole bunch of stuff and people would be liking it. And you'd go to a comic convention and you'd get ignored. So I discovered you, you soon realize where you're at. But would I want to do something new? Yes, I do want to do something new. I had ideas for a few things uh-huh. and, um, you know, I had a couple of different ones. So you've left the and door open. Yeah. Well, the, the thing is, it's, it's getting something made. I think I'm over the point where I just want to make a comic, any comic. Uh-huh. I'd like to do something. I'd certainly like to do something that represents, you know, that's meaningful. Uh-huh. Again, it's still not about money. It's just about making something that, that you yeah. like. Okay, then we've looked at your career and we still need to have your last and final pick, the fifth pick. American Splendor, the first few issues that he published, that Harvey Baker published himself, those are really meaningful to me. I found the first one, probably the first, well, the first issue I read was probably about number seven, which I think came out of our 1982 or so. Uh-huh. I thought this is really substantial. Like it just, it's, it's, a, it's writing directly from his, from his life and it's not really romanticized too much, although it kind of is, but it just had a, such a voice to it and, and it just seemed so meaningful. And uh, I became a, a fan pretty quick. I think I've got just about everything he's made. It's, obviously they made the movie very, I met him twice, in, once in Cleveland in 88 and again in, in uh, San Diego in 1995. And such a nice person. And the guy loves comics and he loves talking about comics and stuff and uh when i was in when i saw him in cleveland in 88 he was he was supposed to do a interview on tv and he invited me to squeeze in on his interview on tv in <laughs> cleveland i was standing there in the lobby of this convention center with him yeah who knows if they used it or not but it's kind of amusing well you've given us your five picks and mm-hmm. at this point we ask a couple of uh tongue-in-cheek kind of questions if we could give you a luxury of any sort something just to help you along during the apocalypse, it can't change the whole scenario. What simple luxury could you take with you? I'll take my piano. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. You might not it, be able it, to it, carry it very far, but if you could uh, leave it, it might somewhere. Float. Yeah, it might, might float if were flooded. <laughs> well, that's but, a good uh, choice and an understandable choice too. Yep. No, I, I, that brings me a lot of pleasure. And you're progressing well. I think you've uh, you've complete, completed an advanced grade now successfully in, in piano. Yeah, I started uh, around 2003. Um, I started doing uh, movie and TV background, like as, as an extra uh, yeah. for quite. A, I did that for about 11 or 12 years. And uh, this, this, I, I told, I, this, I know this sounds off, like a this is a stretch, but that's how I got into piano music oh. because I wanted to 
to get credits in the uh, Canadian Actors Union because oh. you get you get enough credits and you get when you go out for a day of background you get paid more and you get you get a better meal you get treated better <laughs> and you get like, you, know, you just get a better gig out of the day and it ends up being kind of lucrative so I was working my way to get credits and one of them was uh you know, by taking acting classes, I thought might help. But I started taking acting classes at Mohawk College. So I was going back for a second or a third one. I think the third, the third level of Mohawk College. And I was enjoying it, but they canceled it. And so I thought, I'm going to take something instead. This was like 2009. And so I took uh, an introductory to piano. I'd never touched it before, any instrument ever, or, or even taken any kind of music since about, you know, grade seven. So, uh, or eight, and uh, I discovered I liked it, and I stuck with it, and uh, I finished grade eight RCM last year, and uh, I'm still taking lessons now and playing every day. So oh, it's, it's a wonderful it's, hobby. Oh, yeah, that's just it. Yep. One last question to ask you is uh, another tongue-in-cheek question. You only mm-hmm. need one superhero comic, but we'd like to mm-hmm. give you a superpower to take with you mm-hmm. on your trip to the apocalypse. What superpower would you pick? Well, flying would come in handy. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> can't you, lose, you certainly can't uh, can't lose with that. Yeah. Now, that's a that's, uh, a that's a popular pick. I think one or two other uh, guests have picked that as well. I and mean, it's an understandable pick. <laughs> well, Mark, uh, thanks for taking part in this. You know, I regard you as part of Hamilton. People aren't aware that Hamilton has a good comic culture and a rich comics history. Dave Sim was oh, born yeah. here and some of the Golden Age artists... Uh, are from here, Wynn Mortimer, and so on. And I think well, you're an integral part of that cam- uh, Hamilton comic book history. Well, thanks very much. And there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of others that go back from, you know, the, from you know, the golden age up until the 70s, the 60s, the 70s, yeah. the 80s. There's quite a few, with Joe Ullman and Vince Marchesano. And, yeah. And oh, uh, Dave Collier so is here now. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a, a rich culture. Well, thanks again, Mark. And, uh, Thanks for sharing all, all your comic book knowledge and comic book love with us. Well, thanks for having me on. I hope you uh, don't mind uh, me rambling on too much. No, not a bit. Thanks a lot, Mark. Okay. Take care, Ivan. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.